Well, if you would, again, uh, take out your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 18. And we will today be looking at, well, we were reading, actually, verses 1 through 22. Uh, but um, we will be studying through, um, through verse 16. So Genesis chapter 18 Uh, Starting in verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and behold, and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread so that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. As Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, And my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there, and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. 
Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, what we, the truths that we can learn from it, for, for the growth that we can have from it. We thank you that your word in the Old Testament points us to Christ, our Savior. And so we pray, Father, that as we study today, that we may see Christ, that we may grow in our knowledge and understanding, and our, in our, grow in our joy of our Savior. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a, a saying, uh, which is often said, that the church is more hospital than social club. And I think what is meant by this is that there is a care that the Christian has for one another and for the world that goes beyond simply knowing one another and occupying space together. And the scriptures exhort the people of God to show hospitality, to give of ourselves to others in the service of the Lord. For Jesus said that as you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Showing hospitality can challenge and grow our faith, particularly as we consider the providences of God. Often, the circumstances we find ourselves in appear at first to be at odds with God's promises. We have a loving Heavenly Father who cares for us, has promised us in Christ eternal life, and yet, in God's providence, we suffer in this world. In many respects, there are two key lessons for life which are found in this present text. As Abraham and Sarah are visited by the Lord and by two of his angels. Now, the narrative before us is, in some sense, a transition of sorts. In part, it looks back on the promises which have already come, particularly the covenant relationship between Abraham and God, and the promise that he and Sarah would have a son. This promise has been given multiple times over the course of 24 years, and is here again given within the earshot of Sarah. Our narrative also introduces us to what is going to happen in the next three chapters with the destruction of Sodom and the birth of the promised son Isaac. In the midst of all this, we are reminded once again of the many themes that you and I face in our lives as Christians. Hospitality, disbelief, justice, God's grace. We see the faithfulness of God. God is faithful to His covenant, faithful to all of His promises. God says that He will bring something to pass. It will come to pass. But we can also understand how hard it is to wait on the promises of God. And as we've studied, this has been a, a, a theme which kind of comes up over and over again. I sometimes feel like a broken record. Abraham and Sarah are waiting and waiting and waiting. Waiting has been a major theme 
For 24 years they've waited, and now they're quite old. So old, in fact, that Sarah is well beyond childbearing years, and she still continues barren. Yet, the promises of God, you will have a son. Again, we see what seems like a conflict between God's promises and God's providences. And so as we open, as this scene opens up, uh, we find Abraham seated in the shade of his tent in the heat of the day. He's camped again at the Oaks of Mamre, which again reminds us at that time where he was under those same trees when he and Lot separated. Of course, we'll see in the coming weeks um, that Lot plays back into the story. The shade of the trees, the entrance of the tent, would have been a welcoming retreat for weary travelers who are seeking rest and refreshment. In fact, there are three visitors who come. And when they do, Abraham is not in the least perturbed to have his afternoon rest interrupted. In fact, he is pleased to serve as a dutiful host. He shows great hospitality. And so as we read in verse 2, as Abraham lifted his eyes from the shade of his tent, there were these three men who were standing before him. Now, we're not left to guess as to who these three men are. The text actually tells us the first is identified as the Lord. The Lord has come to Abraham. We see in verse 1, in your English Bibles, you'll see that it's Lord in all capital letters. This is Yahweh. This is the covenant-making God who has come to the tent of Abraham. He has come to visit Abraham as he's done many times in the past. And Abraham knew him. This appearance of the Lord is what uh, theologians will call a theophany. That is, a visible manifestation of God. And most likely is the second person of the Godhead. That is, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, having come now in a pre-incarnate form. Think this because it is Christ who reveals the Father to his people. Now the other two men, we will read in verse 22, go on to... Sodom, and we will learn later in chapter 19 that these are angels. And so the Lord himself has come. He's taken on human form. And he's come with two angels to visit Abraham and Sarah. And they appear at the tent door of Abraham. And they had come to announce the birth of Isaac again. Now, this has already come to Abraham, but this time, this promise was to come within the earshot of Sarah. She was to hear of the announcement herself. But they also came to speak to Abraham about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, when Abraham saw the three visitors, we read that he ran from his tent door to greet them. So he's not just you know, sitting in his tent in the shade of the hottest part of the day saying, oh, who are these people coming? No, he runs out to greet them. And he bows himself to the ground. In doing this, Abraham is showing himself to be a worthy host. 
Now remember, in giving of the covenant sign, Abraham's obligation before God was to walk with the Lord and be blameless. We looked at this last week. And so here he is proving himself to be a faithful covenant partner by exhibiting the same generous spirit which we have seen from him previously when he offered Lot the first choice of the land. And so Abraham greets these heavenly visitors and he shows his recognition. Look at verse 3. He says, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, this is obscured in our English translations, but it's more clear in Hebrew. Abraham knows who he's addressing. He uses the term Adonai, which means Lord or Master, and is reserved in the scriptures for God alone instead of the more common Adonai, which is used of both men and God. So Abraham addresses Yahweh and the two others who are with him as one of lower rank. Abraham may not have known who the other two men were, but he knew the chief one. This was the Lord. This was Yahweh. So he says, Please, Master, if you are in the least pleased with me, stop in. Do not continue on your journey past your servant. Twice the, the particle nay occurs in the text, which indicates intense pleading. He's begging the Lord, please stay. In fact, the King James translates one of these as, I pray thee, which is very helpful. Because this is what Abraham's doing. He's begging God to stay. In verse 4, he asks to attend to his guests' unspoken requests. He offers to wash their feet. He invites them to rest under the shade of the tree, to have a bite to eat, to refresh themselves. He wants to give provision and protection for his guests, which are characteristics of a a good host. Abraham's hospitality contrasts with that of Sodom, which is seen later, of course. The same principle of hospitality is illustrated throughout Scripture. And Christians are exhorted to practice hospitality, to serve and provide sustenance to the stranger. In fact, the writer of Hebrews may have had this incident in mind when he wrote in chapter 13, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Consider the exhortation of Scripture further. One of the qualifications for elder in the church and for the widow who was to be enrolled in the continuing care of the church is hospitality. The Christian is called to be hospitable towards others. To have a ministry of hospitality, to care for the needs of the body and others. To serve with honor and with physical care those who may come to your door. If it's true for strangers, how much more true is this for the body of Christ? Christian, you are called to a life of serving of others, of practicing hospitality, even where the world refuses to do such things, to generously feed and to attend to the visitor, whether it be within the church or within our own homes. We're to practice hospitality. 
This is what Abraham requests to do for these three. He wants to wash their feet. This is to honor them as they've been on a dusty journey to provide comfort and rest for them, to give them their needed sustenance, to strengthen them. Abraham's request then, what he's begging to do is serve them. And they were pleased for him to do so. As they say, do as you have said. And so we see in the text, it says, so immediately Abraham springs into action. He sets his household quickly into motion. There's almost a franticness to this. He promptly goes into his tent. He speaks to his wife, Sarah. He says, quick, three sayas of fine flour. Knead it. Make some cakes. And then he goes out to his herd. And he takes a very fine calf. It says, tender and good. He takes the best of his herd. And he slaughters it. And he has one of the young men prepare it. And then he takes curds and milk and meat. And he places all of this before his guests. He runs around to be hospitable. Now keep this in mind. This was the heat of the day. This is not the most convenient time to have guests show up at your house. Or in this case, your tent. This was not the time for making these kinds of preparations. You're not going to cook you know, cakes and meat during this heat of the day. This is the time that you rest in the shade. This is a desert. This is a hot place. And so again, Abraham is showing himself to be an exceptional host. He serves cakes made of the finest flour. He provides a good and tender calf from his herd. He serves milk and curds from his store. He sets a feast before his guests during the most inconveniently hot part of the day. And then he stands alertly by, perhaps like a waiter, as they eat under the shade of the great trees of Mamre. Abraham is doing what you and I ought to do for others as well. He was unflinchingly providing out of his own wealth and blessings for the needs of others. For Abraham, this was an act of worship. Abraham knew that he was providing for the Lord. But our Savior Jesus Christ tells us that whenever we do this for any others, we are doing this for Him. Listen to Matthew chapter 25. This is a long section I'm going to read. Just listen. Matthew 25, 31 through 40. It says, When the Son of Man came in His glory and all the angels with Him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from the other, as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Listen to this. For I was hungry. And you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? 
And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When we serve the needs of others, particularly the stranger, the needy, the hurting, we're serving Christ. We're serving the King. And so like Abraham, our service towards the needs of others is an act of worship. We worship the Lord in our acts of service. Now as these three visitors enjoy the food which Abraham has provided, they turn then to their host and they ask this, Where is Sarah, your wife? We're now getting to the purpose, or at least one of the purposes of their visit. The question is asked, not because they don't know where Sarah is. The Lord knew where she was. Rather, He wanted to ensure that she heard what He was going to say. Now, Abraham's response is surprisingly terse in Hebrew, perhaps with an attendant gesture in her direction. She's in the tent. Perhaps he wonders why his wife is being inquired about. He said all this food before. Why is he asking about Sarah? Well, the Lord wants to ensure that Sarah knew of the fulfillment of the promise of Isaac. Then the Lord speaks, saying, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, literally, it is, I will return in the time of life to you. I will return in the time of life to you. Perhaps meaning in a season of time, or perhaps when life revives, uh, which is to say maybe the springtime. But the emphasis is on the certainty of the promise. I will return to you, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah will have a son. Again, this message is spoken in such a way that Sarah, who was behind them, listening in the tent door, could hear. Now, how does she respond to what she hears? Well, she responds probably the way you and I would, too. She laughed to herself. Verse 11, again, gives the explanation. Abraham and Sarah were quite advanced in years. She's no longer capable, humanly speaking, of bearing a child. And so she says to herself, and this is probably you know, under, your, under her breath, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now I'm going to have a baby? Really? <laughs> this whispering and laughing is not an indication of unbelief. It's not that she doesn't believe the Lord. It's disbelief. How could this possibly be? Just as Abraham had, she whispers to herself, perhaps under her breath, an acknowledgement that this is just too incredible. And text underscores the miracle that is taking place here. As the Lord is able to discern her secret thoughts. Now remember, she's positioned behind him, thus she's not seen. Her facial expressions and reactions could not be discerned. 
Her chuckle and her personal dialogue were not heard, and yet the Lord knows her secret thoughts and her personal chortle. He knows. A normal biological conception was out of the question for Sarah. She is worn out. She's old. And Abraham, her Lord, he's old. As the writer of Hebrews says, he's as good as dead. Her barrenness had become the norm of their life. At this point, Abraham and Sarah had resigned to life. She's just not going to have a baby. I mean, the Lord's promised it, but this is life for them. And at this stage, it seemed utterly impossible. And yet the Lord has said it would happen at the right time. And so Sarah's secret thoughts are verbalized by the Lord. He asks Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, I shall indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Indeed, nothing is impossible with God. God does as He pleases. In declaring her secret thoughts, the Lord makes clear that He is God and that there is, that there is nothing that He cannot do, nothing that is too difficult for Him to accomplish, even the seemingly impossible. Even a barren 90-year-old woman can bear a son. Consider the words of Jeremiah 32, 30, uh, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Think about what Jeremiah is saying there. If God created the heavens and the earth by the word of his power, well, what is it? what else could he not do? I mean, if he could do that, what else can he do? Or is there anything he couldn't do? There's nothing that is too difficult for the Lord to accomplish. Jesus repeats this idea in Mark chapter 10 when speaking about the difficulty of entering the kingdom, saying, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now consider that picture. A camel going through the eye of a needle. Well, that's utterly ridiculous. And the disciples understood this. This is why they asked the question, Well then, who could be saved? Great question, disciples. And Jesus looks down on them and says, With man it is impossible. But with God, not with God. For all things are possible with God. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, our God is the God of the impossible. Human salvation would be impossible were it not for the divine intervention of the triune God. For it was the Father who decreed our salvation. It was the Son who accomplished it at the cross. And it is the Holy Spirit who has applied that salvation to our hearts. It would be impossible without God. The pending birth of Isaac... This is impossible. This is an impossible event, humanly speaking. This should not happen. But this is but one more step on our Lord's journey to the cross. Consider that for a moment. This is one more step on Christ's journey to the cross. 
for us. Which is to say that God's plan to rescue His people from their their sins involved many steps throughout redemptive history which led to the coming of Christ. Knowing this, I do not know how any Christian could deny the sovereignty of God. It is inconceivable to think that God would orchestrate every single detail of the coming of the Savior Jesus Christ, who is to die on the cross and rise again from the dead, only to have the possibility that no one ends up believing. That's utterly inconceivable to me. The salvation of souls, beloved, is the miraculous work of the triune God. It is a miracle. Because our God is the God of the impossible. In fact, God has not only done impossible things, but He has chosen whom He would rescue and pour out His mercy. Just as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Notice in Ephesians that what is being done for us is the very thing that was required of Abraham. Holy and blameless. 1 Corinthians 1.27 God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Sarah and Abraham were not going to be able to boast in themselves of the birth of Isaac. They're not going to be able to say, look at what we did. Sarah's 90 years old. Abraham's 100 years old. They're not going to boast in themselves. Now, they might have boasted in Ishmael if they thought even for a minute that this scheme had worked. But God was demonstrating His amazing power by granting a barren, worn-out woman who's 90 years old a child, a son. Our God is the God of the impossible. And so, verse 14, the promise is repeated. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah does not hardly believe it. And she laughs in disbelief, but she will have a son. But for her part, Sarah denies what the Lord had revealed. His, her heart was revealed to all, but she still denies it. Verse 15, I did not laugh, she says. Now, why does she deny it? Why does she deny what is known to be true? Well, the text tells us she was afraid. Having her secret thoughts revealed was probably quite startling to her. I think it would be to me. She was, she was the intended recipient of the message that these visitors had come to bring. Now, it's one thing to know that the Lord knows our thoughts. It's another thing to have those thoughts revealed outwardly, isn't it? Her denial, though, was wrong, but her fear was quite correct. But the Lord, who again knows all things and is himself truth, 
responds, no, but you did laugh. The definitive tone of the answer ends the matter. Yes, in fact, Sarah, you laughed. I know you laughed. And you know you laughed. And now all of God's people know, for it's recorded for us in the Word. All Sarah could do, though, is stand silently, which is, I think, what I would do, too. There's nothing more to be said. After this, the men set out to depart from the oaks of Mamre and from the tent of Abraham. Verse 16, Then the men set out from there, and they looked toward, down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. So as the men depart, prepared to depart, they looked down in the direction toward Sodom. Now this is, of course, the second subject of their visit as they step away from the tent uh, and they look towards the investigation and then the pending destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the first reason for their visit was really Sarah. right? Sarah was, they, they had come so that she would hear what was said. The second portion, though, is to be a conversation between Abraham and the Lord alone. And this Abraham will be brought into the counsel of God as a prophet of God and will be invited to demonstrate justice. We'll be looking at this more next time. But as the scene ends, Abraham's accompaniment of his departing guests, setting them on their way, completes the narrative's portrait of the good and dutiful host. It's a little bit like uh, people in the Midwest who tend to have the long goodbye, right? You go out and you go with your visitor. You know what I'm talking about? This is, this is being a good host. This is what Abraham was doing. Now they look down towards Sodom because this is geographically how they're situated. But the Hebrew term to look down is also used of the lofty perch of the Lord as he is about to execute judgment. And judgment is what God is to do. And so here is the Lord and now Abraham beside him looking down towards Sodom uh, with judgment pending. Well, there are a number of lessons in this section we've looked at today for the Christian. Uh, there is, of course, first of all, the lesson uh, where the call to practice hospitality, serving those the Lord puts into our path. And the second deals with God's gracious hand and sovereignty over all matters, even our secret thoughts, which can both build our faith and challenge it at the same time. Abraham's hospitality is a model for welcoming God's presence. His service to the Lord was an act of worship. Abraham requests the three visitors to stay as he waits on them personally. And consider this also for a moment. Abraham was the master of his household. He has many servants. We have already seen that he had 318 trained men for war. But here we see that he oversees the needs of his visitors himself. He does not seat himself at the table and then have others serve them. He serves his guests personally. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but there is a level of humility that is found here. The Christian ought not to contract out his or her service to the church. Each of us should look to how we may contribute to the hospitality 
of the church, whether it is here or in our own homes. When we serve others, we are serving the Lord. Second, we see the sovereign hand of the Lord in all matters. Knowing the secret thoughts, controlling the birth of children in impossible circumstances, and orchestrating the coming of the King of Kings. God's promise of a son is is miraculous, that Sarah responds in the same way Abraham had. She doesn't respond with joy. She responds with disbelief and doubt. But nothing is beyond the power of God. Even the virgin birth, even the resurrection from the dead. The promise of God here seems to be in conflict with the providences of God. Sarah's barren. She's unable to produce children. It didn't, seem re- it didn't seem reasonable to believe such a thing could take place, just as many in our day do not believe that it's reasonable to think that Jesus was raised from the dead. But as one author put it, faith transcends reason. The church is a supernatural institution. The nation of Israel was to come about by supernatural means. You and I, like Abraham and Sarah, are to wait on the promises of God. For as we embrace those by faith, we have hope for what is to come. For this light, momentary affliction, 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things unseen are eternal. God is preparing Abraham and Sarah for the hope which was to come. He's preparing for Christ. The kingdom had arrived in the person of Jesus Christ and is returning again to establish His eternal kingdom. You and I are like pilgrims wandering in our tents, as it were, waiting and looking forward to the city whose foundation, whose designer and builder is God. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, walk by faith. Rest in the promises of God, even as you wait upon your Savior. Serve one another with joy as worship to the Lord with thanksgiving in your heart for the blessings which are yours. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word. And we thank you for the exhortation to serve one another and to wait upon you to be encouraged in our faith. That even as uh, much of what we read in Scripture do seem impossible, it seems impossible to the unbeliever that one could be born of a virgin, that one could be raised again from the dead. And yet we, we take these by faith to be true. We thank you, O God, for what you are doing in our lives as you continue to build us up and encourage our faith. Help us to believe. Help us to trust in you, to walk in holiness, and to give all glory to Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.